Well, good morning, everyone. All right, today we are going to get um, a, a wee bit uncomfortable with the scripture we're looking at today. So I thought real, a, a real quick funny story. I promise it won't be long. It's already a little bit of a long sermon, so I won't waste too much of your time. But a lot of people uh, expressed their concerns last Sunday and during the week to me about uh, the potential for me injuring myself with my little theatrical stunt with the ladders from last week. But I had one person, one for the best comment that they gave me. Uh, my, my friend Fred, where's Fred at? Fred's back there, I see, okay, his hand raised. So we're at Life Group on Friday and Fred came to me and says, Daniel, you know, when you pulled those ladders out, I was really worried and I was getting ready to give him my standard response. I've given to many of you who expressed the same things. I said, guys, you don't understand, it's a win-win situation. If I fall off the top of the ladder, the video goes viral and millions of people hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. And before I could, he stopped me. He goes, no, I wasn't worried you were going to fall. He said, I was worried you were going to be joining the Church of Latter-day Saints. So good job, Fred. Listen, today we are going to get probably more uncomfortable in the book of Judges than we have gotten already. So as I kind of scan out around the room, I am glad to see that those of us who brought young children with us today for the most part seem to have made a very good decision by taking your little children to our children's church offerings. Uh, if you have an elementary-aged child with you today and you can still hear my voice, I know this sounds weird and it sounds counterproductive. It's not what you're used to hearing me say. While all, all Scripture is beneficial, all Scripture should be used for teaching. If you did your homework and if you read Judges 19 this week, you will understand why I'm telling you that today's Scripture is not really intended for the elementary-aged students among us. Okay? You probably aren't quite ready for them to hear this chapter, but again, we can be grateful because we have a wonderful team of volunteers who each and every week put together amazing lessons for our, our elementary-aged kids that are going to be age-appropriate. Going along with that warning, I'll also speak to the parents of teenagers because, in my humble opinion, as the father of teenage girls, and again, someone who has taught on this chapter to youth before, my, my opinion changes when we're talking about teenagers. Even though you can see from the sermon behind me, I've entitled this sermon R-Rated, which connotates this, or connotates this idea uh, that the sermon is for someone who is 17 plus, I do think that our teenagers need to hear what is happening in this chapter, what is happening in the people of Israel and all around the people of Israel at this time. Because what I have learned in my own personal experience is that sheltering young people from the truth about how, quite frankly, broken and disgusting evil people can be, it does not actually benefit them, and it does not benefit us either. Right? I can try to hide my teenage girls away from the truth about what happens in the world, and if the only time I try to hide them away from truth is during the two to three hours a week that they are in this church building, what good have I really done? Because it leaves a whole lot of hours in the week where the world is still going to be more than happy to rain down upon them their version of truth when it comes to these issues. So this week, sadly, we are going to see and we are going to hear things that as parents or as grandparents, we, we wish our children would never have to see and never have to hear. But I believe that it is only logical that the church should be the place where we do actually expose young people to the truth of what is going on in the world around them because the world is going to offer it to them anyway. And when the world comes and the world offers these things to them, they're going to present it in a twisted way. Right? The world is going to come to you, young people, and they're going to offer things to you in the same way that the serpent offered Eve that piece of fruit. 
Right? The world's going to want to expose and show something to you, whether it be violence or, or sexuality or drugs or whatever it might be. And in that moment, when you are offered that forbidden fruit, you're going to hear that whisper in your ear that says, you know, did, did God really tell you not to do this? Or you might hear, you know, the only reason he's telling you not to do this is because he knows how fun it's going to be. Some of us will hear whispers that say, you know, what even really is evil? Can anything truly be black and white? Maybe you want to speak to your own pride and your intelligence and say, aren't you smart enough to understand that there's nuance in everything? You see, even our middle school-aged students are going to be exposed to evil. They are going to be exposed to filth. And, and even a homeschooled dad like myself, I have to admit that. So if they are going to be exposed to these things, I at least want them to hear about these dangerous and nasty things. I want them to hear it first from a biblical viewpoint. And that is what I pray will be offered today through the scripture we are going to read. Uh, we're not going to be just hearing about Daniel's personal opinions. Right, moms and dads and grandmas and, and grandpas, you, of course, are welcome to have an opinion that is different than mine. It's okay. You must do what you feel convicted as far as what is right for those who have been entrusted to you. But again, if you want my advice, if you have a child with you today who is in fifth grade or under, or let's just put it this way, if they're old enough to understand the words that I'm speaking, so like if baby Gordon was here today, he would probably be all right. But if you can understand the words that I'm speaking, please take advantage of our children's church offerings. But again, in my opinion, you have a middle school, a high school student, I encourage you just to buckle up and to let them listen. That means you're going to have to prepare yourself potentially for some tough conversations coming, maybe later this afternoon or later tonight. Uh, but my promise to you is that I will not say anything today in front of your loved ones that I'm not saying in front of my own daughters. Again, my second and third graders, they're in children's church. My seventh and tenth graders, they are here listening. That's my warning. And this is about one of the only pieces of scriptures that you will ever hear me give that warning. If you did read ahead, you already know that today's, in today's sermon, we are going to have to be addressing what are potentially, as the world likes to call them, triggering issues today, like homosexuality, abuse, rape, murder, and mutilation. And again, if you're not comfortable with that, and you decide you want to leave a bit early, I pray you won't but I understand that decision. I'll also say one last thing to the parents or to teens or parents of the teens. If, if anything you hear today sits with you, if there's anything that sits on your heart and continues to make you uncomfortable, I would encourage you again to reach out to someone that you trust. Uh, you all have my phone number, my wife's phone number. You're, you're happy to use it. Parents, you're happy to reach out to us and we can answer any questions that you may have in private. And then I promise all my disclosures are over. When I walked in and I saw the beautiful Christmas trees today, I realized this probably was not the sermon introduction that everybody was going to be expecting today. So I am sorry if I bring down the mood of the room. But what I hope that we will see today is, again, that God has made sure that this very strange and upsetting story was recorded for us for a very good reason. This story was not recorded for us so that we can lust after the gore of it or lust after the extremity of it, Right? That is not at all God's intention. It's our society and our world that has this infatuation with the extreme, right? that has become infatuated with gore and with violence. And, and it's specifically because of this infatuation that our world has that my conscience will not allow me to just simply skip over these last few chapters of Judges and move on. The sermon, again, is entitled Rated R or R-Rated. 
And when a movie is, is rated R, it divides us into typically two groups I've found as human beings. Some of us see that R rating on a movie, and we'll just assume and take, uh, take the rating uh, guidelines word for it that this is not a movie that we should see. We assume that, well, the movie's received this rating for a reason. Different movies, though, are rated R for different reasons. Sometimes it is things like sexuality and nudity, and we are smart enough to know that this is not something that we want to dump into our eyes, that we should allow into our hearts. Right? We're smart enough to know that we don't want to put ourselves in a situation to be tempted to lust after something that we should not. But some movies also are, are rated R because of they, they contain extreme gore, and they ex contain extreme violence. And again, some of us are smart enough to say, you know, we don't want to see those ultra-realistic close-up scenes of blood and guts. But the interesting cultural phenomena around us that also exists is there also are people that feel like if a movie is not rated R, it's not even worth their time to see. Uh, have any of you ever used a website called Plugged In before? No? Okay, I'll recommend it to you today. It's, it's a website where basically they review all of the movies, um, whether they be on your streaming services or out in the movie theaters, and they review them from a Christian perspective. So again, as a parent or a grandparent, you can, you can go and you can look and you can say, okay, well, I know this scene is coming up here or this language is going to be used here or this topic is going to be discussed there, and you can make an educated decision as to what your young person that you're a guardian of should be taking into their eyes. So a couple weeks ago, uh, my oldest daughter, Sydney, she, she came to me and she wanted to watch a movie rated PG-13 with one of her friends. I, I went to the website, I looked it up, and I read what it had to say. She's over 13 years old, but I decided, you know what, I think she can handle the little bit of uh, adult content that's in this movie. It's okay, sweetie, for you to watch this movie with your friend. And just for fun, I went then and I also Googled reviews for the movie, not from a Christian perspective. And what I was fascinated by is the biggest complaint about the movie Almost universally the biggest complaint about the movie is that it was not rated R. That the movie was not worth seeing because it did not contain the type of things that would have earned it that R rating. Right? This is the bizarre relationship that our world, that our society has with things that are evil. We can watch the news and we see examples, for example, I should say, we can look at the carnage in the Middle East and, and naturally it makes us want to advert our eyes. Right? We hear stories of rape and murder, of children being kidnapped, and, and, and our response is, I can't even look at this anymore. It's too much for my heart to bear. I can't take it. But then Friday night rolls around, and we go out and we seek out movies that glorify all the same evil. We'll advert our eyes from the 6 o'clock news, but then at 9 p.m. we'll go and spend $15 on a movie ticket and call it entertainment. The difference, I would presume is that we justify a way that the girl being brutalized on the news, that's a real person, right? With real family, with a mother and a father and a brother and a sister. While the girl that is suffering in the movie is just a high-paid actress playing pretend. And because that is the baseline for many of our sensibilities, I want to remind you that what we are going to read today is not fiction. What we are going to read today was not written by some twisted mind who just wanted to sell you a ticket to the newest slasher flick. What we are going to be reading today is the story of real people. These are real men, real women. Again, there's going to be words used today that you do not want to hear or words that I know will make the average middle school boy chuckle. Please don't. 
Again, remember the character today that will absorb the, the bulk of the brutality that we're going to read about was a real girl. It was a real girl probably a lot closer to, to your guy's age than she was to my age. So here we go. Uh, first two verses. I'm going to grab a stool today. First two verses of the chapter. One and two. Let's see if I can drop this without falling. All right. So here's how it begins. Verse one. It says, In those days when there was no king in Israel... A certain Levite was sojourning in remote parts of the hill country of Ephraim, who took himself a concubine from Bethlehem in Judah. And his concubine was unfaithful to him. And she went away from her father's house at Bethlehem in Judah and was there for four months. So as this chapter begins, we meet another Levite. This is not the same Levite that we talked about last week. This is another Levite who also finds himself out journeying. Uh, this one, though, is not traveling alone. We're told right off the bat that, that he has this mission, that he's going to retrieve his concubine. And again, we've discussed concubines before back in chapter 8 when we talked about the downfall of Gideon. So we should remember that a concubine is this kind of second-class wife. Right off the bat, that should tell us a whole lot about this man, about this Levite. He is a Levite. He's a descendant of Aaron. He is an Israelite. But he is not a man who's pursuing God. The girl with him being a concubine, the second-class wife, while it doesn't necessarily say this directly in Scripture, uh, it's safe to assume that as a concubine, she was not his first nor his only wife. If she was, there would be no reason to address her specifically as a concubine. And this young girl, for some, um, some unnamed reason, she is no longer happy to be married to this Levite, so she runs away from her husband. And specifically what the text says is that she was unfaithful to him. And this can mean a number of different things. Uh, this can mean that this, this girl had committed adultery, that she was physically unfaithful to her husband. Uh, some will even read this and, and interpret it to say that this young lady had taken up the career of prostitution. Uh, but most agree, as do I, that since there's not enough really detail here in the original text to tell us, unfaithful most likely just simply means that she was unfaithful to her husband because she left. Right? She was unfaithful because she was not there to perform her duties as a wife or concubine. Right? Remember that there's no recourse given to women in the law. A woman who is dissatisfied with her marriage has no legal route to divorce her husband. So the act of leaving in itself was being unfaithful. And why, again, we don't know. Maybe she was tired of just being that second-class wife, being just another face in this, this harem for this Levite. But for whatever the reason is, when she runs away, she runs back to her father's house. And after four months of his concubine being missing, this Levite decides it's time to return and reclaim his bride. Verses 3 through 9 of this chapter, honestly, are very quite pleasant. Surprisingly, the interaction between the Levite, his concubine who was unfaithful, and her father, it goes pretty well. They, they spend some time together. They spend several days together, actually, in her father's house. But eventually, the Levite is ready to leave. He's ready to go home with his bride. Seeing as nightfall was soon coming, the girl's father begs them to stay the night. He knows that it's not safe to travel at night in Israel. This is what it says in verses 10 through 13. It says, The man would not spend the night. He rose up and departed and arrived opposite Jabus, that is Jerusalem, 
And he had with him a couple of saddled donkeys, and his concubine was with him. When they were near Jabus, the day was nearly over, and the servant said to his master, Come now, let us turn aside to this city and the Jebusites and spend the night in it. And his master said to him, We will not turn aside into a city of foreigners who do not belong to the people of Israel. We will pass on to Gibeah. And he said to his young man, Come and let us draw near to one of these places and spend the night at Gibeah or Ramah. So what we just read is not just a pointless back-and-forth conversation between two people who died a long time ago. What we just read is integrally important to what's going to happen next in this story. And it is very important that we understand what we just read if we're going to appreciate everything that's going to happen in the remaining chapters of this book. The Levite, his second-class wife, and his servant, they decide they're going to leave even though darkness is approaching. And they only get about six miles down the road when they realize that it's going to get too dark for them to continue, but by their luck, they come to a city. And surely any reasonable person would go in and they would find a safe place in the city, and then they would continue on their journey in the morning. But again, the Levite refuses. He says, this is a city that is full of Canaanites. He's fearful of the people there. He thinks it would be unsafe for them to spend the night around these people. Remember, Canaanites, they were bad people. Uh, they were bad guys who did bad things, and they worshipped bad gods. So the Levite insists that they are going to, to push on until they reach a city belonging to the people of Israel because they know if they can make it there, they should be safe. They're going to be among brothers. So they continue on into the waning light, and they make it another six miles to this town called Gibeah. And this was a town that belonged to the tribe of Benjamin. Again, this is a town where the people would be fellow Israelites, men whom he should be able to call brother. These should be God-fearing men. These should be men who recognize his lineage and recognize his heritage and will care for him and his companions. And the sun has completely gone down now by the time they get to this town. But still, what they expect when they arrive is going to be a hospitable welcome. Uh, hospitality was such a, a huge part of the people's culture then. But hospitality is not what they receive. They find themselves standing in the middle of the town square, and no one is around, not a soul. There's no one coming out that is offering them a place to spend the night except for one old man, eventually one old man, who he himself is also a foreigner to the city, he offers them a place to come and stay the night. But as he makes this offer to them, he also gives them a very ominous warning. Verse 20, it says, The old man said, Peace be to you. I will care for all your wants, only do not spend the night in the square. This is starting to even sound like a horror movie, isn't it? Right? It's a dark town, a bustling, it should be a bustling town full of life, but it's a ghost town. And a strange old man comes out of nowhere and he offers you this warning of whatever you do, do not spend the night in the town square. It's ominous. And again, it's also a very strange warning though. Because the town square is located within the city gates, within the walls of the city. This should actually be a pretty safe place for them because there should be no way that someone from the outside is going to infiltrate the city gates and get to them. This should be a perfectly safe spot where, where no, none of the Canaanites from that city of Jabus are going to be able to get to this party. 
The men that are already inside the walls, they're also God's chosen people. Again, these are his brothers. These are ancestors who could trace their lineage back and say, I was, I was redeemed out of Egypt, or my family was redeemed out of Egypt the same as yours. Right? My, my people were given the law the same way as yours. They should have had absolutely no reason to be fearful of the men that were inside the walls of this city. All of the evil should have been happening out there. When they were inside here, they should have been safe in the walls of Gibeah. Right? But they did not know that the worst evil they could face was already inside the walls with them. I'm going to read the entire exchange that happens next. Uh, it's verses 22 through 28, and it's a long exchange, but I don't want to stop halfway through it, because then we may not get through all of it. So please follow along with me. The scripture will be on the screen if you do not have your Bibles with you. Verse 22. They've gone back to the old man's house, and it says, They were making their hearts merry. Behold, the men of the city, worthless fellows, surrounded the house, beating on the door. And they said to the old man, the master of the house, Bring out the man who came into your house, that we may know him. And the man, the master of the house, went out to them and said to them, Know, my brothers, do not act so wickedly, since this man has come into my house. Do not do this vile thing. Behold, here are my virgin daughter and his concubine. Let me bring them out now, violate them, and do with them what seems good to you. But against this man, do not do this outrageous thing. But the men would not listen to him. So the man seized his concubine and made her go out to them, and they knew her and abused her all night until the morning. And as the dawn began to break, they let her go. And as the morning appeared, the woman came and fell down at the door of the man's house where her master was until it was light. And her master rose up in the morning, and when he opened the doors of the house and went out on his way, behold, there was his concubine lying at the door of the house with her hands on the threshold. He said to her, Get up, let us be going. But there was no answer. Then he put her on the donkey, and the man rose up and went away to his home. I don't know exactly what to say, but the first thing I would say, again, remember these are all real people. These are all real people who lived, who, who all made real decisions. These are people who gave into real lusts. These are people who acted really horribly. These are people who suffered unimaginably. So we can't turn away and just dismiss those feelings of disgust and despair that you should have felt as we read those words out loud. If you did let your mind drift, or, or if you do have that fight or flight response, and, and halfway through that scripture you went into full flight mode and just started thinking about your Christmas list, uh, we're going to recap a little bit here. You've got to remember, we, we should not be trying to escape the truth. There's a reason why this scripture was left here for us. So we need to hear it, and we need to process it. Again, almost just like a horror movie, the people inside the house are having a merry old time when there's a bang at the door. And when they look out the window, what they see is that they are surrounded by a mob. It's not, though, an angry mob. It's an excited and lustful mob. It's a mob who is looking for flesh to satisfy their carnal needs. Uh, they boldly proclaim their intentions. Right? There's no trying to hide their evil. 
It's out in the open. And it's surprising, or at least it was surprising to me, the very first time I ever read this scripture, is that the men of the city, they, they don't ask for the man's concubine to be released to them for their enjoyment. Who they ask for is the Levite. They bang on the old man's door, and they say they are there to rape the man whom they saw earlier in the courtyard. The Israelites have become so depraved in their lust, they're so lost, that even the, the, the raping of a young woman isn't even enough to quench their perversions. They're looking for new levels of wickedness. They are satisfied stacking sin on top of sin on top of sin. And this old man, their host, at first he seems like maybe he's going to be the hero of our story. He says, no, guys, don't do this wicked thing. But it does not take long for him to expose himself as being every bit as broken and awful and disgusting as the men who are banging on his front door. Because he's more worried about his reputation as a hospitable host to this Levite than he is about his standing as a man. A man who should be defending for and caring for the woman, the women, I should say, who God has entrusted to him. The old man is also evil and wicked. So he offers the predators a trade. He offers them not only this man's concubine, but his own daughter, as long as they will leave his male guest alone. And don't think for a second that there was a misunderstanding and he did not know what he was sending these young women to. He was well aware that he was feeding his own daughter to a gang of rapists. But somehow in his mind, this was preferable to homosexual assault. The mob will not stop. So finally, out of fear, the Levite, this man set aside who should have been having the opportunity to serve the one true God as a priest, he shoves his concubine out the door. Think of the fear that must have swept over that poor, poor girl. The man who was supposed to keep her safe in this dark and scary world offers her body as a sacrifice so that his may not be violated. And I wish I could say that what happened to this girl next is something that is unimaginable to us in 2023, but, but sadly, this is very much still a reality that this evil still exists in this world. What happens to this girl next? I mean, honestly, there are many deaths that are recorded for us in, in our Bible. The Bible is not a book without its share of bloodshed. But there's really only one death in Scripture that chokes me up more than that of this young girl, and then that is of Jesus. Because personally, I can hear the account of the death of Jesus, and I know that my sin, my actions, played a role in those nails being pierced into his hands. But this young girl, for me, is always a close second. Because mentally, just reading of her abuse and her demise, my first reaction absolutely is I just want to turn away from it. Do you know why? Because I don't want to picture my wife or my daughters ever being in a situation where the man whom they entrusted themselves to isn't willing to go out that front door and start blasting away at this angry horde of rapists. I can't imagine them ever entrusting themselves to a man who is actually going to push them towards beating and towards rape and towards death. Right? That is too much for me to actually allow myself to think about. But that is the reality of the final hours of this girl's life. The scripture tells us that it says that they all knew her. And we know what that means. It says they abused her all night until morning. 
You see, as Christians, we can't allow there to be any gray area between good and evil. This is evil. This is nauseating evil. We should never be afraid to recognize and to point out evil. In the morning when the sun rises, she is released. And with the last little bit of life in her body, she crawls back to the home where her cowardly, there's other words I could use, but let's just stick with cowardly husband, is sleeping away. And by the time she reaches the steps to the only familiar house in this strange city, she has nothing left in her and she dies. And then we learn that her husband has already written her off as a loss. Right? He knows he can go find another concubine. There's no need to get himself killed over it. He gets up that morning and he's ready to leave town. It doesn't say that he's interested in going and finding this girl, that he's interested in rescuing her. But unfortunately, his plans get altered when he opens the door and trips over her broken and abused body as he's making his escape. This story may sound familiar because it is hauntingly familiar to the account of Sodom and Gomorrah that is given to us in the book of Genesis. In Genesis, the men of those cities also gathered outside of a home. They also worked themselves up into a frenzy, and they demanded to have relations with the strangers who were inside. That evil was so shocking that God annihilated the cities and everyone inside of them. But here in Judges, God is obviously silent. But God's silence in this situation, she should not be mistaken for his permission. It should not be mistaken for his blessing. God has already shown us in very obvious ways what he thinks of this type of, of unnatural and forced fornication. We have to understand that our omnipotent God was not surprised what went down here in this city because he has seen it before. For, for him to, to look down and see that men who believe that they have no king... That they, that they do whatever is right in their own eyes, even if that thing that they do is barbaric and despicable, it was not breaking news. And for us, we should not be surprised by this either. We should not be surprised that if this type of evil existed in the book of Genesis, if it was still around during the time of the judges, if I can look at history books from cultures from all over the world and see that this type of evil has continued to exist, why do we presume today that we are free of it? Can we not agree that we live in a time where the battle cry of the lost is, let me do whatever I want, let me do whatever is right in my own eyes? What history has shown us time and time again is when men try to free themselves from the perceived oppression of the one true God, when men decide it is time to do whatever is right in their own eyes, evil will always prevail. And just like it did in Gibeah, this evil will eventually even infiltrate the places that God designed to be safe havens. Again, the Levite thought he, he would be at risk if he stayed out in the world, right? He thought he would be at risk if he stayed out around the pagan Canaanites. So he sought out a place specifically where he would be safe among God's people. But what he quickly learned is that even God's people had been corrupted by the, the ways of the world. And, and today, again, sadly, it's no different. 
This is why we hear the all-too-frequent stories of abuse happening in churches. And when I hear of abuse happening within the walls of churches, it makes my blood boil, right? Don't get me wrong. Abuse that is happening in locker rooms or in a frat house, I mean, that is still bad. But too often, still today, the most vulnerable among us are seeking out the church as a safe place as the place that they should be able to turn to and find a, a safe haven from everything that is happening out there in the world. And what they are finding, just like the Levite did, is that there's predators already inside of these walls. That there are wolves in sheep's clothing, that they are salivating at the opportunity to prey upon the most vulnerable. Right? We've had to been under a rock for the last three decades if we have not heard about the abuse scandals that, that for example, rocked the Catholic Church. Recently, uh, the Baptists dealt with a similar situation. Right, and being non-denominational, maybe we don't get the sins of others cast upon us so easily, but the truth is small non-denominational churches are not immune from this type of evil, evil either. It does not take much searching on the internet to find small non-denominational churches where abuse has happened, even restoration movement churches is, uh, that have seen lives destroyed by men whose sinfulness and men whose lust knew no limits. Again, based upon their title, among the Benjamites, it should have been a place where these people would have found rest, where this concubine would have been safe with her fallen Levite. And sadly, too often, men who carry the title of priest or pastor or minister, the, the ones who, who we count on the most to create a safe place for the lost and for the weary and for the lonely and for the heartbroken and the sick, still are the ones that are using their position to, to, to lure the vulnerable to safety so that they can feed on them for their own sinful desires. This happens far too often. And I hope you understand that when I say it happens far too often, what I mean is if it happens once, it's too often. Amen? I know this sounds probably a lot more like a public service announcement than it does a sermon, and maybe that should bother me, but it does not. I hate that I live in a world where I can open my Twitter, or I guess it's called X now, and I can see stories from all over the planet of atrocities, just like I read about in this story that are still being inflicted upon the vulnerable today. I hope you think it's okay for me to say that I hate it, and I hope that you hate it too. We can hate it, but we shouldn't be surprised, because man's default setting is evil. And this leads me to, honestly, the greatest problem that atheists among us have every day. It's a problem that I think, as Christians, we need to force the atheists to contemplate. It's the question of, without God, what is the moral standard of the world? If we decide that we are unwilling to submit to what God's word tells us is good and what is evil, then what is the standard that we are always going to be left with? The standard is purely popularity. You see, without God as the ultimate moral arbitrator, what is good and what is evil will change with the times. It can change day to day. Homosexuality, it used to be considered evil. And it was unpopular. Now it's been made popular, and it's considered good. Abortion was once unpopular, so we could call it evil. Now it's popular, so people march, carrying signs, calling it a human right. <coughs> Promiscuity used to be shameful. It was wicked. It was embarrassing. 
Today we see more and more young women are seeing things like OnlyFans as their only way to fame and money and stability, and so much of the world stands up and applauds them for their bravery, for fighting the patriarchy. And this works both ways, too. Uh, racism and race-based slavery was once very popular, so it was considered to be a good thing by many. But now it is unpopular, so we call it a great evil. You can take this to the extremes. There are tribes, there are places in the world where you can go to where cannibalism is popular. So in the eyes of those men, it is moral. You see, we cannot let the popularity of the masses dictate to us what is good and what is evil because people are fickle and they will often change their minds of what they like as often as the tides change. But our God does not change. Homosexuality is a sin because God said it, no matter what pop culture decides. Abortion is wicked because it ends a human life, and God told us, thou shalt not murder. I don't care how clever your protest sign is, it cannot change the truth. Sex was designed to be enjoyed in the confines of marriage because God is the author of both sex and marriage. And his word tells us that husband and wife should go out and multiply and be fruitful. Taking slaves and selling them based upon their race, it is evil. Because God's word tells us that all men are made in the image of their creator, regardless of their skin tone. Right? Even if the world were to decide that slavery would once again become popular for the Christian, we have to say, no, God's word does not change. Right? What if cannibalism became the next big thing to become popular? And you chuckle, right? You probably laugh. But would it be right even if it became common? And there's a whole rabbit hole to dive down here that we won't today, but what do you think is behind the trend of sexualizing children today? What do you think evil's plan for that is? What are they trying to make popular there? You have to at least ask yourself, if the enemy is trying, to make, is trying to, to make the sexualization of children normal, again, what is the end game there that he wants to make popular? And again, this is the problem with atheism. It's not that atheists are unintelligent. It's that they've been blinded. They can't see that without some form of an ultimate moral arbitrator, right? someone whose standards are just and standards are going to be unchanging, everything, and I literally mean everything that you can imagine, will always be up for debate because it's always just going to be part of one big popularity contest. If anything is popular enough, we will be forced to call it moral by their standards. When you have no king chaos will reign. When men do whatever is right in their own eyes, evil will always make gains. And all of this feeds into the problem of glorifying fictitious and fantastical stories about brutality and abuse and gore like we see in the movies because it numbs us to the real pain and it numbs us to the real suffering. It makes us much more likely to accept evil as good when we are confronted by it in reality. And then coincidentally, as my thoughts were being prepared to wrap up this message, I was drawn back to the same piece of scripture uh, that we were looking at at the end of last week's message, just two verses back. It's Matthew 6, the words of Jesus, verses 22 and 23. It says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. 
But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Right, what we look at matters, guys. What you take into your body through your eyes, it will affect you. If you're consuming pornography day after day after day, you will see that eventually you are going to be full of darkness. You will come to see that what maybe first you justified as innocent exploration now has you looking at things and fantasizing about things that you had never thought you ever would. But you're conditioning your brain voluntarily. See, the men of Gibeah most likely did not wake up one morning and decide that homosexual rape was their favorite thing to do. It was day after day and week after week and probably year after year as they continued to give in to more depravity and give in to more lust until all of a sudden they became nothing more than just feral animals. If you are consuming violence at unhealthy levels, whether that be in video games or movies or the websites you frequent, if you are taking violence into your soul day after day after day, you are numbing yourself. And what you will see is that eventually the things that break God's heart about this world, they are no longer going to break yours. You will realize that there'll be a day that you'll be able to listen to a story like the one we read today, and that knot that you used to feel in your chest, it'll no longer be there. So we guard our hearts. We remember that Jesus died so that we may have life and we may have it more abundantly. We remember that evil exists to destroy and snuff out life. And as I've been saying, we all have a choice to make. Will you glorify evil? Will you be blown whichever way the wind is headed, or, or will you stand up and be a man? Will you stand up and be a woman who is after God's own heart? Will you make sure that your heart will break for the most vulnerable among us? Will you defend what is right? Will you defend what is true? Will you defend those that are helpless, even if it costs you something, even if it costs you up to and including your own life. Pray with me.